You're listening to the Belmar Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Belmar or to see our upcoming events, visit belmarchurch.com. Uh, we're starting a new sermon series uh, today, looking at the book of Jude. And uh, I should have mentioned in the welcome, but if you'd like the sermon notes for this morning, if you would just text 303-529-2188, 303-529-2188, just text the word notes, and uh, you'll get a link for that. We're going to go over a lot of scripture this morning, and uh, you might not, uh, you might miss one, and and hear me say something and think, now what did that preacher say and where's that found in the Bible? And uh, you can always go back and look at that uh, in the sermon notes. If you're looking for the book of Jude in your Bible, go all the way to the end, Revelations, the last book, and right before Revelations, a little book, one chapter, just 25 verses, the book of Jude. And uh, Jude is a book that we don't often Uh, preach about or talk about quite as much, uh, especially in the New Testament, for a New Testament book. Uh, It was a a quick letter written because of an urgent message. And we're going to see that this morning. And Jude chapter 1, verse 1 says this. This letter is from Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. I am writing to all who have been called by God the Father, who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. So Jude identifies himself as a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. That's interesting because that's probably how Mary felt, right? Jesus, James, Jude, those were at least three of her sons. Because Jude was a brother, a half-brother of Jesus. But he doesn't identify himself with his brotherhood with Christ. He says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, but I'm a brother of James. In Mark chapter 6, we see uh, in verse number 3 just this little note. In describing how people felt about Jesus, it says, then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Now we know that 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 name Judas would also be uh, known as Judah or shortened for Jude. And so Jude is a brother of Jesus Christ. And we know that when Jesus was beginning his earthly ministry, his brothers didn't believe in him. In John chapter 7 and verse 5, it says, even his brothers didn't believe in him. Now, think about that. I was thinking about this this week. Think about you show up for the first day of school. You've moved up a grade, and it's like, hey, Jude, welcome to class. Oh, you're Jesus' brother. Well, what a great student he was. Of course he was. He never did anything wrong. He never broke a rule. He, he never backtalked a teacher. He never missed an assignment. You're Jesus' brother. It's so good to have you in class. That's a hard act to follow, isn't it? And you wonder 
how his brothers viewed Jesus. He was always different. He was always, uh, the stories of him would have always been different, right? I mean, uh, they, they, brothers might have remembered that time when they were young and their parents hauled them back to Jerusalem frantically searching for Jesus and they found him in the temple. Maybe they heard the stories. The other brothers were born in houses and, and they were expected and, and the midwives came, but not Jesus. He was born in a stable and shepherds came and later wise men came. And they knew that he was different, but they didn't believe that he was the Messiah. And yet they had a front row seat to the early days of Jesus. And we're not sure, but most scholars would tell us that probably it was the resurrection. After all, he had for years predicted his death, and then they saw him die on a cross. But he didn't stay there. He rose again. And in Acts chapter 1, Jesus comes out with his disciples. They come to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus there gives them the repeat of the Great Commission, and then he ascends into heaven. The angel, uh, a couple of angels are there, and uh, they say, look, just as Jesus ascended into heaven, he's coming back again. And we pick up the story in Acts chapter 1, in verse number 12, when it says, Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of a half mile. When they arrived, they went to the upper, upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who are present, and it lists the names of the disciples. And then in verse 14, it says this, they all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several of the women, and the brothers of Jesus. Now, these guys were not there just because they didn't have any other place to go. Listen, if you were going to identify with the disciples of Jesus immediately following his death and his resurrection, you, you were in danger of being in trouble. They were constantly being worried about being arrested. And if they crucified their leader, why wouldn't they kill them? These guys were here because they now believe their brother to be the Messiah. And so Jude writes, and he says, I'm the slave of Jesus Christ. And then he identifies who he is by saying, I'm the brother of James. He also says this, he says, I am writing to all who have been called by God the Father, who loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. See, God chooses us. God calls us. 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 13 says, As for us, we can't help but thank God for you, dear brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. We are always thankful that God chooses you to be among the first to experience salvation, a salvation that came through the Spirit who makes you holy and through your belief in the truth. He called you to salvation when, you, when we told you the good news, now you can share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul, or excuse me, Jude is writing to believers. 
And then he gives them a message in verse number two. He says this, may God give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. Jude is very closely related to the book of 2 Peter. If you look at Jude and the theme that is there and some of the examples that are there, uh, 2 Peter has some of the same, it has the same theme and some of the same examples. And Peter would write in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 2, uh, a similar greeting. He says, May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous grace and excellence. And so, no wonder Jude would say, well, God, I, I pray that God would give you more and more mercy, peace, and love. And then we get to the heart of the matter. Why is it that Jude writes this letter? Again, it's only 25 verses. It's, it's a short letter, and the indication is that he wrote it in some uh, hurried manner. He says in verse number three, Dear friends, I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share. But now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. He said, I was going to write you a letter about our common salvation. I thought I would write you a letter. And you can imagine the idea of a devotion, right? Where we would just explore all that we have in Jesus. Our common salvation, how God loves us, how God cares for us, what we have in him and how we relate to him. I wanted to write you this letter. But that's not the letter he's writing. He said, but an urgent matter came up. And I'm writing that you would defend the faith. Urging you to defend the faith. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12 says this, fight the good fight for the true faith, for, fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you, which you have, been, which you have declared so well before many witnesses. Timothy said, or Paul said to Timothy, fight the good fight. Jude says, defend the faith. Other versions of Jude's uh, one three say that we need to contend for the faith. Now, when we talk about this idea, I, I always like to remind us that Scripture calls us to contend or to fight or to defend, but it doesn't call us to be contentious. It doesn't call us to always be looking for a fight. You, you, you've met those people, right? That they're just looking to be offended. They're looking for a fight. I think I've used this illustration before, but uh, when I first got married to my first wife, um, who I'm still married to, <laughs> we'll see how it goes. So far, pretty good. 29 years here in just a couple of months. My wife 
is uh, in the nursery this morning and um, hopefully not streaming this, but uh, my wife is so patient and she doesn't like to fight. That was irritating to me when we first got married because sometimes I just wake up in a mood, you know? Just kind of in a bad mood. How are you? I'm all right. And I just want, I'd, I'd want to get in a good fight. Just yell at each other a little bit and we'd feel better, you know? That's not the way she operates. And you know what she would do? Not fight. You know what that would do? Make me angry. Er. And she's like, well, what's to be accomplished by that? I'm like, you can't apply logic to how I feel. Because sometimes I could be contentious. Listen, as followers of Jesus Christ, we ought not be that way. We shouldn't just be looking for a fight, a reason to, 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 to fight or argue with somebody, but we are called to be true to the faith that we believe in. And sometimes that means defending that faith. Sometimes that means contending or fighting for that faith. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. And so Jude lays out the situation in verse number four. He says, I say uh, this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. When I preach, I usually use the New King James Version, which is the version that I probably use more than any other, but uh, the other version that I'll use sometimes and that I'm using for this series is the New Living Translation. And sometimes I like the New Living Translation because it just uses some phrases that I think, uh, for me, bring, bring a, a, a sharper picture. And one, when I was reading through and one, knew that I wanted to preach on Jude, I was thinking about what version to use. One of the reasons I used the New Living Translation was verse four, where he says, they have wormed their way in. And I was like, oh, I know what that is. I mean, I, I understand that worms do that, but I know that phrase, right? There's people that come in, then there's people that worm their way in. And that's what he talked about. He, he lays out this situation. He says, first of all, I say this because there's some ungodly people. Their motive is not to serve God Almighty. They are ungodly people. 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 1, says this, You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. That was Paul writing to Timothy uh, over almost 2,000 years ago about what was to come, and it seems like a description of exactly the world in which we live in, does it not? 
And then Paul said this to Timothy in verse five. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. We need to mark people that are ungodly. And notice that in, in Timothy, Paul said they can act religious and still be ungodly. And Jude says these ungodly people have come. He says they've wormed their way in. They were deceitful. Second Peter chapter two and verse one says this, but there were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will cleverly teach destruction, destructive heresies, and even deny the master who bought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction upon themselves. They wormed their way in. They looked one way, but they acted a different way. They were deceitful. If we're going to defend the faith, if we're going to defend for the faith, one of the things that we need to do is be honest. Man, as I, as I studied this week and, and was praying over this passage, this was convicting to me and just not just personally, but as a, a, not just our local church, but just people in general. We live in an era where everybody wants to spin things. They want to talk, talk things a certain way. And it seems like half of what you see anymore is people trying to discern what other people mean. Listen, people shouldn't walk away from a conversation with you and wonder what you meant by that. The Bible says that we ought to have our yeas be yeas, our yes be yes, and our no be no. We need to be people who are honest, not people who are deceitful. I think one of that, one of the ways where I see that personally is when we mess up. Because we're gonna mess up, right? We're all sinners, saved by grace. God is working in us to make us more like Jesus Christ. We should mess up less and less, but we still mess up. So how do you react when you mess up? When you say something you shouldn't have said, when you lose it on somebody, when you, whatever it is that you do, do are you honest about that? Do you take ownership in that? Do you say, yes, I, I messed up and I, I am sorry or I need to deal with whatever? Or do you say, well, if you'd have known the circumstances and this guy did this to me, so this is why I did this. Is that honest? Just something to think about. That's what the Holy Spirit made me think about, so you're welcome. Romans chapter six and verse 15 says this. Well then, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Of course not. This was the, the heresy, the false teaching that Jude is writing about. He says people have wormed their way in and what they're saying is God's grace covers whatever you wanna do. Just live the way you wanna live. It's okay. God will understand. And Paul writing in Romans says, is this the way we should live? He says in verse 16, don't you realize 
that you became the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Listen, God loves you. And God sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for you. God demonstrated his power over sin and death in that Jesus rose again on the third day and he offers to us forgiveness for all of the wrong things that we've ever done. Every sin we've committed in the past, every, every sin we will commit in the future, God promises to forgive us if we will put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But that does not give us a license, a blank check, to live however we want and to do whatever we want. That's not what it means. Because to do that would take the sacrifice of Jesus and we would still be a slave to sin. Rather, Paul says we are to obey the commandments of God. Is it any wonder that Jude would identify himself as a slave of Jesus Christ? And, and Romans says that we are, should be obedient to godly living. Listen, Sin is going to lead us to destruction. But even as Christians, there is only heartache. There is only defeat in our sin. Yes, there's forgiveness. Yes, there's restoration. But we're still going to have to pay the consequences for that. But if we will follow the commands of God, if we will live a life the way he has called us to live, he will bless us. It's not that everything will be perfect, but I'll tell you what, when you obey God, there is, there is a blessing and a security there that's, that's unlike anything else. And yet, in our world, we don't like that because we want to do what we want to do. We've got our own ideas about what's okay and, and our own ideas about how, what's a wise way for us to live. And some of God's precepts, those seem old-fashioned or out of date. But can I tell you, you're going to be a slave to sin or you're going to be a slave to godly living. And one leads to death and destruction. And one leads to righteousness and blessings. And so Paul said these, these teachers, these false teachers, they creep in. They've wormed their way in. And then Jude says, the condemnation, the end of verse four, the condemnation of such people was recorded long ago. For they have denied our only maker, or our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. These deceitful people, but their judgment is secure. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8 says this, you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promises, some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. Peter's writing and he's talking about the return of Christ. And in that day, 
People were becoming impatient about the return of Christ. How about now? I mean, most people look at, at, at people who believe in Christ and say, those people are deceived. They're deluded. They think Jesus is gonna return. They think he's coming back. They've been saying that for hundreds and thousands of years, and he hasn't come back yet. And Peter said, a day with the Lord is the same as a thousand years. And it's not that he's slow, and it's not that he forgot. He's patient. Other versions say he's long-suffering. His desire is that more people would come to repentance, that more people would turn to him. But the day of the Lord will come, verse 10, as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with the terrible noise. The very elements themselves will disappear in fire and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live. Listen, the return of Christ should cause us, should motivate us to live godly lives. The fact that he hasn't come back yet shouldn't allow us to say, well, maybe he's never coming back or maybe he's not coming back for a long time so I can do what I want. Jesus told several stories about that and said the master always returns when you don't think it. But we should recognize that God always fulfills his promise. And judgment always comes. See, here's the thing. We like instant judgment, don't we? I think I told you this story, but a couple of years ago, I was snowboarding up at Winter Park, and uh, we were done for the day, and I was coming back over Berthet Pass. We'd come over the summit of the pass, and we're heading down, and if you know that stretch, it's pretty steep, and uh, there's almost always in the wintertime some snow on the road, and there was a little bit of snow and ice this day, not too much. I'm in my four-wheel drive, and I'm just, you know, I've had a great day, and I'm just kind of taking it easy. And this guy comes flying by me. I mean, this guy must have been doing 80, 80 to 90 miles an hour. Right down that pass, a little bit of snow and ice on the road. And I thought, bless his heart. That's not what I thought. I thought, what an idiot. And then all of a sudden, like it's, he goes by me and it's probably another 10 seconds and all of a sudden I see this car fly in front of me and I'm thinking, what is going on? And then I realize it's a highway patrol car that has pulled a U and the snow is piled up on the side where the snow plow is and he's got that big front bumper on the front of that car and he just barely scraped that snow and he whipped a U-turn to go after this dude and I thought, glory, hallelujah, amen? And you know what I did in my pride and my flesh when I drove, I was like, now who's in first? This guy. I'm not saying it's right. 
I take responsibility. <laughs> That's what we like, right? Somebody does something dumb and boom, they get caught. But it's not always the way it works. Like that guy is, is a liar at work and that guy mistreats other people and then they get the promotion. That's not the way it's supposed to work. And, and that person mistreats you in that relationship and then it seems like their life is just fine. That's not the way it's supposed to work. And we want that instant judgment. But the Bible doesn't call us to that. The Bible calls us to walk by faith and to recognize that God does judge sin and he does judge wickedness. And our job is to leave the judgment to him. That's not easy. We want to take judgments into our own hands. But Jude says their destruction was, was ordained long ago. Their judgment was ordained long ago. It's going to happen. And then Jude does this which we'll see throughout this, this book, he reaches back into the Old Testament. Again, think about who Jude is. He's a Jew. He's growing up in a devoutly religious Jewish home. They would go to the temple every year. They would worship. I mean, we know that Mary and Joseph were chosen by God to in their home for Jesus Christ to be raised in. And Jude was raised in that environment as well. And so as he's writing this letter and as he's illustrating these points, see, when I try to illustrate something, I'll often share a story about an activity that I'm doing or something in my family or something related to sports or something else that I enjoy that I'm familiar with. And what does Jude do? He reaches back to the Old Testament and to ancient Hebrew literature, and he gives some examples of God's judgment. In verse number five, he says this, so I want to remind you, though you already know these things, that Jesus first rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt. But later he destroyed those who did not remain faithful. And I remind you of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belonged. God has kept them securely chained in prison of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. And don't forget Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighboring towns, which were filled with immorality and every kind of sexual perversion. Those cities were destroyed by fire and serve as a warning of the eternal fire of God's judgment. He gives three examples here, and I want to move through them pretty quickly. First, he gives the example of the nation of Israel. He says that God brought them up out of Egypt. He delivered them. But then he judged the unfaithfulness of those who refused to go into the promised land. You remember the story, right, that Moses got one man from every tribe, 12 men, 
He sent them across the Jordan River into the land that God had promised for them to spy out the land. They went and they spied out that land. They came back with a giant cluster of groups because they wanted to show the fertileness, the, 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 the goodness of this land. But then they gave a bad report. They said, we can't go in. The people are like giants and we would be like bugs to them. Except for Joshua and Caleb. Those two men said, God's promised it to us, let's go. And in Numbers chapter 14, beginning in verse number two, says the, their voices, the voices of the people in a great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died in Egypt or even here in the wilderness, they complained. Why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? Then they plotted among themselves, let's choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. This is the same song these guys have been singing, isn't it? Oh, we were so much better in Egypt, where we were slaves. God freed us. Every step along the way, God has provided. God has given victory. He's parted the Red Sea. He's brought water from the rock. He's provided manna from heaven. All along the way, God provides, and they get to the promised land, and they hear this report, and they're like, we're done with Moses, we're done with Aaron, we need to get another leader, go back to Egypt, where we can be slaves again. When we read that, it's ridiculous. But how often do we return to the habits and the sins from which we've been freed by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Skip down to verse number 21. It says, but as surely as I live and as surely as the earth is filled with the Lord's glory, not one of these people will ever enter the land. This is God's judgment on them. They have all seen my glorious presence and the miraculous signs I perform, both in Egypt and in the wilderness. But again and again, they have tested me by refusing to listen to my voice. They will never even see the land I swore to give their ancestors. None of those who have treated me with contempt will ever see it. And then verse 28, God says, now tell them this. Surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. You will all drop dead in this wilderness because you complained against me. Every one of you, uh, every one who, uh, of you who is 20 years old and older and was included in the registration will die. You will not enter and occupy the land I swore to give you. The only exception will be Caleb, son of Jeff, Jephnu, and Joshua, son of Nun. For, for 40 years, the nation of Israel wandered in the wilderness while people died. An entire generation. Moses watched all of these men and women who had come with him out of Egypt. These people who had walked across dry land of, on the Red Sea, who had drank the water from the rock, 
he watched as one by one they died in judgment for their lack of faith to what God had promised them. And Jude brings up this example and says, God judges. You know, you know the story. God will judge. Then he gives the example of fallen angels in verse number six. And this is an example that scholars talk about and disagree about exactly what, what did these angels do and what is being referenced here. There's other literature apart from scripture, Hebrew literature that, that explores some of this, some of which is rejected and some of which people still study and talk about. But the story that Jude gives us is clear. He says, I remind you, verse six, of the angels who did not stay within the limits of authority God gave them, but left the place where they belong. Maybe this is those who, these are fallen angels for sure. Maybe it's referring to the incident of them following Lucifer. But regardless, God set a boundary and they went outside of it. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine God setting guidelines and then you deciding to go outside of those? Thank goodness we would never do that, right? And what happened to them? God has kept them securely chained in prisons of darkness, waiting for the great day of judgment. They're chained. They're they don't have the option to go outside of God's boundaries now and they are waiting for judgment that will be their eternal destruction. Second Peter chapter two and verse four says, for God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell in gloomy pits of darkness where they are being held until that day of judgment. And then he gives the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll not take the time, but that story is recorded in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 19. You remember that God blessed Lot and Abraham so much that their, their, their flocks and their, their people grew so much that they couldn't even uh, occupy together. They had to spread out, and so Lot chose to go towards the plain where Sodom and Gomorrah were. He was there in that evil, wicked city. And God decided that he was going to judge it. Lot and his daughters escaped that judgment, but Lot's wife did not. And God rained down fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed those cities as an example of what he would do in judgment of wickedness. And even today, the names of Sodom and Gomorrah serve as a warning of the judgment of God. Peter would write in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6, Later, God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into heaps of ash. And listen to what he says. He made them an example of what would happen to ungodly people. 
Listen, I believe you read in Revelation where we see the judgment of God. It's only a few verses later where the Bible says that God wipes every tear from their eye. I believe we will weep when we see the judgment of God on the ungodly. I don't think we're going to rejoice in that. I don't think we're going to go, ha ha, those people got theirs. I think our hearts will break. Recognizing that we too deserve that judgment outside of God's grace and forgiveness in our life. We need to understand God judges evil. Even when we don't see it. Even when it seems like evil abounds and wins, God will judge it. And we need to, we need to remember that in our own life and we need to remind one another of that and we need to defend the faith. We need to be faithful to obey God's commands. And as we close this morning, I wanna give you just three practical ways to defend the faith. Number one, we've got to know the word of God. We've got to know the word of God. Timothy talks about that. Hebrews talks about that. If you have the notes, you can look up those verses. Listen, we need to know the truth. And truth is found when we know the, God's word. I mentioned this last week, but it's so true. There are times when we're faced with decisions or circumstances and we can really take the time and we can go to God's word and we can dive in and we can search a subject and we can really feel like we have an answer to something. But there's so many times when we're walking through our lives and we're faced with decisions and we're faced with circumstances and we have to make a, a, a judgment right in that moment. And we're gonna be able to do it righteously if we have God's word in us. If we know what the truth of God's word is, then we can, we can make those righteous judgments because we have the righteousness of God. Ephesians talks all about spiritual warfare in Ephesians chapter six. He talks about how Satan's a lion looking to devour. And then he says, put on the armor of God. And in that, in verse number 17, he says, put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. See, armor's great, but armor protects you when you get hit. I don't wanna get hit. Even with armor, it can hurt. You with me? We're given one weapon to block and to attack God's word. That's it. That's the sword. And how, how negligent are we? I bet if I polled most of you, you have multiple copies of scripture in your home. I mean, you realize that we probably get a dozen or more Bibles a year left at the church that no one ever comes and claims. And what do you do with that? You can't throw God's word away, right? And nobody really wants a used Bible. 
They sit in a box in a closet, just so you know. Not only that, we live in a day and age where you can pull out your phone and have all the Bible right there on it. With you wherever you go, at your fingertips. But how often are we using what God has given to us? Can you imagine a soldier with his breastplate on and his helmet on and all of the armor and the protection running into the battle and never unsheathing his sword? That's what we do as Christians when we don't read God's word. We need to be men and women of the word. We need to read it, study it, memorize it, meditate upon it. It needs to be in us and coming out of us. As we digest the truth, it's so much easier to recognize a lie. God has given us his word. Not only that, we defend the faith when we watch and pray. That's what Jesus told his disciples the night in which he would be, was betrayed. He took him to the garden and he said, watch and pray and it will keep you from sin. Ephesians chapter six uh, continues in verse number 18. And it, after he says, we have the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, he says, pray in the spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. We need to watch and pray. And then finally, we need to separate from false teachers. Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18 says this. And now I make one more appeal, my dear brothers and sisters. Watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things contrary to what you have been taught. Stay away from them. You know what that means in the Greek? You guessed it. Stay away from them. Such people are not serving Christ our Lord. They are serving their own personal interests. By smooth talk and glowing words, they deceive innocent people. Listen, I would challenge you. Who are you listening to? Now understand what I'm saying this morning. I'm not saying you should only listen to Pastor Daryl. He's got all the answers. Listen, no. But who are you listening to? We are surrounded by information, podcasts and YouTube, and you can find any preacher or teacher anywhere. But we need to be careful. We need to be discerning. And when we spot a false teacher, stay away from them. Listen, if you spot a false teacher, don't go, you don't need to go and hear what they have to say next week. Stay away from them. That's what scripture says. Because if we keep going back there and we let that influence our mind and our heart, it will influence us in a deceitful way. When we recognize untruth, we need to run from it. 
We need to defend the faith. That is what Jude wrote his letter for. And we do that by being in God's word, by watching and praying, and by separating ourselves from deceitful teachers. Let's pray this morning. Dear God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your servant, your brother Jude, who gives to us this short letter to challenge us, to defend, to fight for our faith. Lord, I believe now more than ever, we are, we're surrounded by deceitfulness, by wickedness, and God, as followers of you, it can be difficult, but we need to stand for the truth, stand for our faith. God, give us wisdom in that. Help us not to be contentious, but help us to stand and fight as you would have us to. Lord, bless these men and women as they go from this place today. Use us, God, to be a light in this community. In Christ Jesus' name we pray, amen.